Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where new signings are guaranteed a great debut. Join and choose your welcome offer at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. And the blue shirts go charging in there. Wicks is in there too. Well, what about that for a happy picture? Steve Wicks doesn't get in amongst the goal scorers long, and that's only his second of the season. But when Ray Wilkins floated that free kick in and the blue charge was on, Wicks led the way and nodded it wide of wood to put Chelsea into the lead. Chelsea supporters here at the Blue Day podcast. We are delighted to welcome this individual on the podcast today. He is a man who made 164 appearances, scoring nine goals during two spells at the club. And he was part of the Chelsea team that won promotion in 1977. Here is none other than Steve Wicks. Steve, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? I'm all right, mate. Thanks. I'm all right. Coping with what's, uh, uh, what's going on. But, yeah, fine. Absolutely fine. Yes, um, small stepping stones, hopefully on the road to some sense of normality. Absolutely. That's all we want, isn't it? Normality. Yes. Yes. No, no, that is true. Let's begin, shall we, right from the start. Um, Who influenced you to become a footballer in the first place? Well, my dad played for Reading. Um, So I was involved in football as a kid. And I absolutely loved it. I, I love that that smell in the dressing room of the stuff they used to rub into their legs, and and uh, I just got hooked on it straight away. It was my uh, although going on, I could have signed for Middlesex cricket. I had a, a I did enjoy my cricket. Um, okay. There was no uh, choice really. I had to play football and play for Chelsea. That was my uh, favourite team. Good choice, I have to say. Good choice. And who was your favourite player growing up as a youngster? Well, um, without doubt, it was Bobby Moore. I think Bobby Moore was the most fantastic footballer I'd ever seen in terms of, you know, I still think his performance against Brazil in the 1970 World Cup, sometimes defenders don't get the praise that forwards get, but I think that was the most incredible performance I think I've ever seen anyone play in an England shirt. I think to play against Jarzinho, Pele, Tostal, Gears and Revelino and play like he did 
I thought was just out of this world. And he never gave the ball away. He never panicked. Never panicked. Was it because of your admiration for Bobby Moore that when you, you know, was looking to become a footballer that you looked at being a defender was more suitable for you? Well, I signed for Chelsea as a centre forward, actually. Um, oh, I signed, okay. Yeah, I signed as a centre forward. And I had quite a couple of good years. I'd, I'd, I'd scored in, in the, the... There was an under... There was a, a youth team and the reserve youth team. And when you first go there, being a first-year apprentice, you played in the... I think I always scored over 20 goals. But we had an injury problem. And Ken Chiletto, um played me against West Brom. Youth... Uh, team in the quarterfinal of the, the FA Youth Cup. Uh, we had no centre half. He said to me, "I understand you play." So I said, "Yeah." And it, he put me in uh, in the team, and I played against the two England youth team internationals, and we won two nil. Uh, and that was it. Rest is I history, as they say. Yeah, Ken never gave me that number nine shirt back. <laughs> went through the youth team, you went through the reserve team. What, what was the academy set up like back then? Because obviously, you know, again, going rolling through the decades, it's a lot different to what it is now. But even when you were sort of youngster coming through, what was the academy set up like? Was there a lot of pressure on you to succeed or was there more of an emphasis of your development rather than you being pressured to make it to the next level? Well, I think when you signed and Chelsea had the pick of, a lot of fantastic players. If you were looking at Wimbledon and seeding, of the 16 apprentice professionals they signed, I was probably seed number 14. That's a good the, the whole academy. There was Ray Wilkins, Ray Lewington, Teddy Maybank, Clive Walker. You know, very, very good footballers. Uh, Tommy Langley, very good footballers. And probably four of them were in the England schoolboys team. Uh, Johnny Sparrow, who was up there with Ray, he was he was probably him and Ray Wilkins were the two best sixteen year olds I'd, I'd ever seen. And unfortunately for Johnny, he got a few injuries and it it it, it uh, stopped his 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 career. But no, it was, it was great. Um, Ken Chiletto was the ideal person. He uh, he was a great coach. He was like your driving instructor. He uh, he taught you the real necessities. Um, and it stayed with me all through my career. Um, he was fantastic with with the kids, um, you know. And it, it was a fantastic club to be involved with. Who was the best player you played with in the youth team? I'm guessing it might have been maybe Ray Wilkins or somebody of that ilk. Yeah, I think Ray was always the most um, outstanding player, uh, and John Sparrow. Um, but there were so many. You know, talented, and and what was great was we sort of came to the club at twelve, so we we knew each other in 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 and out. And if if I was having a bad time, you get the boys coming up to me and say, "Come on, Wicko, we can do this. Come on, you'll be fine." You know, and there was that real togetherness, and that, that was proven because I think we won everything uh, as a youth team. Um, we then moved into the reserves. And our first year in the reserves, we won the combination, which I think is what's lacking in football today, is the fact that we play Arsenal when I had to mark John Radford. Or there was always the players that were coming back from injury. I remember playing against West Ham and playing against Jeff Hurst. You know, and that, that's how I learned my trade. Was, was, and I think that's what really is missing in today's football. Describe to the listeners, if you can, 
uh, Steve, what was it like for you to sign your first professional contract at Chelsea? Again, as you said, because you know you you liked Chelsea as a youngster, this must have been a dream come true for you. Yeah, it was. Uh, I made my debut for Chelsea, and I was called in by Eddie McCready. Um, and I must be one of the few Chelsea players that was played for the first team on seven pound forty three pence a week. I think there was probably some kind of record that one. But but um, I got called in, and, and my dad came with me. And he said to me, you go ask for £100. You cannot, if you ask for anything less than £100, I'm going to go mad. So I said, OK. So we went to this Indian restaurant. And my dad had never had an Indian in his life. And he ordered the, the hottest. And all I could, all I could remember seeing my dad just sweat pouring off his forehead. As Eddie, you know, we were talking. And, uh, and Eddie said, well, Stevie, what do you think you're worth? And I said, £100 a week, he went, well, I don't think that. He said, I don't think that, Stevie. He said, I think you're worth £250 a week. Yeah, so I, I sacked my dad as an agent after that. <laughs> but also, it, it was, it was you know, from, from being an apprentice where you, you were paid £10 home to your parents for looking after you, and then you had your £7.43, £8.43, £9.43 in your... In your yeah, um, to sort of get a loyalty bonus um, each year and to get a £100 ride. Honestly, I, I walked back to the train station thinking I'd won the, uh, won the pools. It was, uh, yeah. it was a great... And uh, it was great to uh, go down the King's Road to take six and be able to afford the clothes I was buying. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you, you briefly mentioned... Eddie McCready, of course, he was the manager at the time when you made your debut. What was he like as a coach for you? He was great. He was a motivator rather than a coach, Eddie. He, he, um, he loved, he, he, he used to speak like Telly Tavares. He used to say, I love my babies. And that's what he called us, his babies. You know, and he, he like, and he was a real character. And he'd say things that people probably outside the club, like, Ray Lewington is the new Billy Bremner or, you know, such and such will be playing for England by the time he's, you know. And outside the club, they probably thought he was mad, but the boys actually believed him. And in his whole ethos as being a coach was to make sure you had confidence in yourself. Hmm. But he also had one of the greatest men I ever met in football by his side. And that was Ron Seward, who was absolutely unbelievable, Ron. Absolute gentleman. Um, knew his football inside out. And was the ideal foil. You know, when I look back and think of Frank, maybe Frank, if he'd have had someone with the experience that that, Rod, that Eddie had with Ron, it might have been a different story. Because every time Eddie was down, Ron was the one that would say, come on, we could do it. We'll sort this out. Don't worry. And he was the one that organised the training as well. So it was, it was a great partnership. Great partnership. When it comes to the coaching side, obviously, again, you've sort of seen it as a player and even later on in your sort of other roles in football. But how important do you feel it is for a manager to have an experienced number two alongside him? Because we've seen you know, stories of managers that have gone into new clubs and wanted a younger sort of number two or somebody that he can teach and mentor. What would you prefer? I mean, again, you've been sort of a first team coach as well. You know, did you prefer 
the experienced number two, or did you want um, somebody? Well, I, I, I literally, I went for people that I played with that I trusted. I think there's a, there's an awful lot. The, the number two has to be right. You know, there's been, you know, stories coming out about all different types of things, but number two is a very important person. He's really the person that liaises between the players and the manager. Uh, and he's a very important person. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, a lot of those Chelsea experienced players would have seen Jody coaching the under-16s. And then all of a sudden, Jody's coaching them and telling them what to do. And there's a, you know, as I think if Frankie brought someone in who, who'd been involved, um, then I think, you know, I'm not saying for one second. I know Jody, he was at Lillishaw with my son. And I know Jody, and he's a great lad. But that's probably what, you know, probably what could have been a, uh, a factor in everything. Now, back to yourself, Steve. You made your debut for the club on the 31st of March, 1975. Do you remember who it was against? Ipswich. That's right, yes. I'd gone into training and I get this call that Mickey Droy had pulled his hamstring. And would I get back to the bridge as quickly as possible? And I'd done a real, quite a hard session. So I went back to, uh, to the ground. Um, and I phoned my mum and dad and said, look, I don't know whether I'm playing or not. I know when I get it, but I've been called back and it seems that I might be playing. So they sort of rushed and I, and I, and I met a, a um, oh, he was the reporter from the Standard. The Standard, yeah. I said, look, it's a great thing, I said, because it's my mum's birthday today and she's 40 today and what a great birthday present. My mum went absolutely berserk that I said she was 40. She went absolutely potty. <laughs> I told the world she was 40. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was against Ipswich, who were champions. They, they were champions of the uh, year before. They won the league. And they had Johnson and Weimark, and they were a very, very good side. And I thought, oh, you know, God, this is going to be a game. But we drew 0-0. And, um, yeah, it was a, a very pleasing debut. What were the other players like with you, obviously, when you made your debut? Were they making sure you would be OK on the game? What were their relationship like with you on the field? Oh, they were fantastic. You know, the, the senior players at Chelsea were fantastic anyway. Um, you know, people like David Hay and, and uh, Johnny Hollins and people like that, they were fantastic people. Um, and it was an honour. You know, I was, I was, it was me with my mouth open in the, in the dressing room with, with, with players that were my heroes. You know, um, I was very fond of, you know, when I, Chelsea were my favourite team. I used to love Ian Hutchinson. I used to think he was the most, anyone that rolls his socks down and plays against Norman Hunter and uh, Jack Charlton, I think, is uh, I've got the most utmost respect for. And the way he sorted Hunter out in that uh, 1970 Cup final was, was, he was fantastic. I like Hutch. And he was as nice, he was one of the nicest people you ever wish to meet. He was great. He was great with the kids. He uh, was always there for you if you need him. And he, he'd look after you. When I made my day, it was really funny because when I made my debut, I was going home uh, to Mitcham. Um, all of a sudden, I had these brakes skid. And Hutch used to have a, a yellow Lotus Elan. 
And he said, Wixie, where are you going? So I'm going home. He said, you're not going home. You just play for Chelsea. You're coming out with me. And we went to Michael Crawford's birthday party in Wimbledon. And I sat there and I'd had a great day football-wise, but there was everyone you could, Britt Eklund, Judy Christie, everyone you could think of in the in this thing. And it was one of the most fantastic endings. Lovely bloke, Hutch. Lovely bloke. What sort of stories maybe you could share with us? Because I know certain people's perceptions of that team in that era, you know, obviously the drinking culture was sort of quite large. There was a, a lot of characters in, in that team as well. What sort of stories springs to mind when you sort of think back to people like Peter Osgood and Ron Harris and, as you say, you know, John Hollins, Ray Wilkins, them sort well, of players in and out of the ground? Uh Ron Harris is an experience. You know, he, he, <laughs> he will be listening to this. Don't worry. He will be listening to this. Listen, the most fearsome time was uh, if, if Ron didn't think he was playing and we had a young'uns versus old'uns, five aside behind the goal at Sanford Bridge, that was a dangerous time, I'm telling you. If he was on the... <laughs> oh God, he got volleyed. <laughs> nah, he's a great club man. Um, but, you know, you... They just demanded respect, you know. Um, you know funny enough, you, you look at Aussie, and I, I'd love to see and wonder what he would have been like if he didn't have that lifestyle, and he had a lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. If he'd have been away from that, uh, I, I look at him now, and you know, I, I. It's funny because all the all the rebel boys of of my time, yeah, Stan Bowles, your Tony Curry. Yeah, Peter Osgoods, um, Alan Hudson, they'd be the players that would be worth fortunes now. You know, you imagine George Best or Stan Bowles or with the protection they've got now when defenders can't touch them. You know, there's that famous goal that the best he scores against Chelsea at Old Trafford. And Ron Harris was like Bruce Lee. If, he, if, he'd, have, if he'd have caught him there, he'd have, he'd have decapitated him. But if you look at those players now, they'd be the players that that would be worth worth the money, and also could. Tra I think it would be easier for those quality players to transform into football now than the players now coming back to the football that we played in. And you just got to look at the pitches to see that. You know, the, you know, I watch the big match, uh, you know, revisited, and there's hardly any grass on those pitches yes. in the winter. That's right. It just looks like a mud pit or if, if they have put sand on it just in case and yeah oh definitely um, when i signed for derby it was like it was like i was playing on a beach i've never seen so much sand. <laughs> like unbelievable right? <laughs> 1977 the club wins promotion back to the first division and as you you did reference the big match revisited they did have a, a match on there it was a chelsea versus hull we won four nil I think after every goal, kids and teenagers started swarming the pitch. And I think there was, um, I remember sort of you know, looking back through the history, there's a sort of an image of Eddie McCready with a microphone trying to tell the supporters to get off the pitch to finish off the game. And, you know, what was what was that like sort of back then, being, being part of that side to go back into the first division? And what sort of stories have you got of that particular day itself? Well, I, th I think the whole game was, was um, you know, it, it, it makes me laugh when people turn around and say that Chelsea, they were a small club. 
you know, I think there was something like 50-odd thousand there that day, and it was, like, absolutely packed, and the atmosphere was absolutely brilliant. Um, but we were in danger of, of, I think we were winning. When the fourth goal went in, the, uh, the referee said that one more invasion is calling the game off. And he, he was that adamant because it was, it was ridiculous, every goal. Mm. But it, it, what happened was Chelsea transformed into, you know, it, you know, you had people like Gary Stanley, you had people like Ray Wilkins, who were good-looking boys. And I think that what happened, you know, it was nothing for them to have their photos in Jackie. Or, or, you know, it was like a, a pop culture where the, we became, you know, a lot of young girls' favourite team. And, you know, and, and it was the atmosphere. It was the rebirth, really, of Chelsea. It was, it was it, you know, I, I look at Leeds today um, and what they're going through. And I can see so much of us, how we were when we came up in them. On our day, we'd beat anyone. You know, the famous you know, FA Cup sort of uh, against Liverpool when we beat Liverpool. Mm. Um, 4-2, we beat the European champions 4-2. And we played very well. We played them off the park, really. People don't remember mm. that. We weren't, as a centre-back, I didn't feel much pressure then, then putting us under pressure in that game. You know, it was, we just, just our pace and the way we played and it was absolutely superb that day. Yet, the next week, we went to Coventry and got beaten 3-1-4-1. And you're thinking, how does that happen? But it's where you're, you're inexperienced, you're playing at a different level. And, yeah, it, 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 it's a hard, it was a hard old league, especially for a bunch of boys. It was a physical, mm. it was a physical time. You know, you used to go to places and get absolutely people kicking lumps out of you. And, uh, you know, and it was, it was a hard, hard time. But, but, the great thing from our... There was so much satisfaction in that dressing room that we got our club back to where it belonged. That, that, was, that was the satisfaction. That now we can start again and we're, we're back where we belong. You know, for our fans, who were fantastic that year, you know, the away support was incredible that year. You know, we played Wolves and we needed... A, that was quite a funny story, actually. When we needed a point to go up, they needed a point for the championship. And with 20 minutes to go, Bobby Gould was saying, just keep the ball. Just keep the ball. I'm not going to chuck goes you down. Just just keep it. It's fine. You know, and you're thinking, yeah, I know, yeah, you're going <laughs> to. But it, it was like that. We played the last 15 minutes of that game was bizarre because no one was tackling each other. And just played the game because it's what they wanted, what we wanted. Um, but the thing that I can't express was the fact that it was a big game. We were playing a very good side. And there was an away support fan. So, no Chelsea fans officially were allowed in that game, in, in the ground. Coming up the motorway, all there were were Chelsea fans, thousands of them. And we're thinking, where are they going to go? Are they going to wait outside? Or are they going When we came out, the whole of the away end was all Chelsea. It was the most incredible oh. boot. It was the most incredible boost that our fans were there. And evidently they were going up, buying tickets at, at Wolves and getting their tickets. And, and it was unbelievable that so many Chelsea fans were there that day. It, it really made it. Because back then it was just a case of buying tickets there on the day rather than what it is now where you have to buy oh. it months in advance and based on loyalty points. You never had that back then. 
No, no, they, they could go up to Walton and get a ticket. They wouldn't even ask, you know, you know, they could speak with the broadest London accent and you just get your ticket, not a problem. <laughs> That's brilliant. Go on. No, I was just going to say, but back to that Wolves game, you know, both sides didn't really sort of need to win to go up because both sides, if they didn't lose, would go up. You don't yeah. normally get that in football now these days. You don't, you don't normally get that particular... Yeah, you don't normally get that particular scenario. That's the word I was looking for. You don't yeah. normally get that scenario where, you know, two teams are playing. They don't need to, they don't need to sort of go all out to win. As you say, that must have been crazy. No, it was, it was, it was, it was a, the, the day was a... And we came back and, and what we didn't know, that uh, Mr. Brian had arranged for us to go to Barbarella's. He had a party all arranged. We didn't know that till we got back. And then... <laughs> One was invited girlfriends, wives, everybody, mums and dads, if they were there. And then he had this massive party in Barbarella's, which was just outside the ground. And um, it was a fantastic night. Fantastic night. Now, moving on sort of a, a little bit um, to 1979, um, in particular in January, you left Chelsea uh, to go to Derby County. I, I did actually yeah. find the fee when I was doing my research for this, and I believe the fee was two hundred and seventy-five thousand. Well, yeah. the, the, well, uh, my I was told it was five hundred twenty-five thousand. Yeah, I was, I was. It was five hundred twenty-five thousand. I remember it because um, Steve Sims was um, signing for Derby, but he failed a medical, and Mister Brian wouldn't accept anything less than. Steve Sims, because he, he thought that, you know, it was an insult to... Uh... So anyway, I, I yeah, Derby, I... I, um... I was just going to sort of say, you know, in regards to that sort of departure, what, what was going through your mind with that? And, you know, what, what were the reasons for you wanting to, you know, wanting to leave Chelsea? Was, you know, was it a case of lack of first team opportunities or time for a fresh challenge, you know, because there, there are some Chelsea fans that will see things, will hear things differently. So could you just sort of maybe clear up sort of like the rumour yeah. on your yeah, departure? I, well, we beat Man City at Man City 3-2. So it was a, and we'd got two vital points. Um, I got called into the office by Mr. Brian, who I've got to say he was the best chairman I ever worked for. He was a lovely man, honest, total lovely man. And he said, Steve, he said, uh, we've had an offer from Derby. And that's when he said 525. So I said, um, right, Steve, it's not that we want you to go, but we're in a desperate situation here, really desperate. And would you go and speak to them? So I said, yeah. I said, I'll go and speak to them. Um, so it was really funny. I tell you, oh, this is a cracking story. You're like this. So I take Jane, my wife, take drives up. I'm in the car and we're driving up to Derby and it starts snowing. And we arrive in Derby about an hour and a half late. Right. We're phoning saying we're, we're about an hour and a half late. So by that time, Tommy Dogsy had had probably a bottle and a half too much champagne. So going up, I was devising the questions that I'd asked him. Um, so uh, the first one it was, I suppose, Tom, you're trying to do at Derby what you did at, 
at Old Trafford with you know, Man United. He went, I hope not, Stevie. The physio's wife here is diabolical. <laughs> so I, went, I didn't know what to say. I was like, right, OK. <laughs> so, but what, what could you say to that, I guess? <laughs> uh, what a character. Um, so anyway, he wanted me to sign there and then. And he was pushing really hard. And I said, look, I just want to sleep, sleep on it. I just want to. And I said, there's things I, I need to talk to Chelsea about as well, like my loyalty bonus and just making time, really, because I wasn't, I didn't, the baseball ground did nothing for me. And it was in a, I don't know whether you, it was in a dreadful area. It was, it was, I don't know, winters, it was, it was a bit. So anyway, being a soft southerner that I am. Um, so I went back to Chelsea the next day and I'd made my mind that I wasn't going to sign. I wasn't going to sign. Uh, there was, you know, bearing in mind, and, and I'll tell you because it, it's it's not, you know, I was on two hundred and seventy five, two hundred and fifty pounds a week at Chelsea, and it went up to a thousand, and I had a Saab Turbo, a massive signing on fee, but I didn't want to go, you know, you know, I'd been at Chelsea for. And I didn't want people to think that I was, you know, deserting a sinking ship. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Mr. Brian and I said to him, Mr. Brian, I don't want to sign for Derby. He went, oh, God. So I said, what? He said, Steve, I want you to make a phone call. In fact, I'll get him. So he phoned to Chris Matthews and the phone went and it was Martin Spencer who was the administrator of Chelsea Football Club at that time. And I told him I didn't want to go. And he said, look, I don't know how to say this, and I hate saying this to you, but if you don't go, we can't fulfil our fixture at the weekend, which will mean we get a points deduction, and basically we get relegated and go out of business. We need that money desperately. Wow. So I had I sort of walked out. I said, right, OK. I said... Uh, and I, I remember walking up Fulham Road in tears. I was absolutely gutted. Mm. And um, I went up and signed for Derby. Um, I think I've got it somewhere. Uh, uh, Mr. Brian sent me the most wonderful letter. Um, and just said, thank you for saving the club. And that, you know, it's, I don't, I haven't really told this story that much, but, but it, it was a very sad, sad day. Yeah. You know, I was there since I was 12 and I was I was in love with the club. I was blue. The only time I ever had blue blood. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. So it was a sad day. And I never felt right at Derby. I never, you know, mm. I went there with Bruce Rioch, Roy McFarlane. And the worst thing Tom did was make me captain. And to lead those people were, you know, sure, Archie Gemmore, I think, was there. He had won everything. That must have put make pressure on you to yeah. succeed. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did, but it was it was an honour. But by the same token, it was it was uh, it was a little bit too much to take. It put pressure on me as a player, and um, yeah. But it was it was an interesting time. Interesting time. One one little bit you did you mentioned was the finances at Chelsea wasn't as good as obviously what they are now and obviously probably what they were you know, years ago but just sort of describe sort of briefly if you can how 
how bad the finances were at that club because, you know, I've heard stories of players having to wash their own kit because they had to tell the kit lady that they haven't got a job anymore. What's, what Was it that bad? And could yeah, it you went maybe from, it went shed from, some light to oh, it? Yeah, it, it, listen, when I first went to Chelsea and Dave Sexton was there in 1917, we won the FA Cup. Um, you go there... You could have toast and, and cereal for breakfast. You could have a lunch. Um, you could have a pint of milk, drink a pint of milk, pint of orange juice. You were looked after. It was a brilliant club. You were looked after. And then when we went into administration through the building of the stand, all of a sudden it was literally tea bags, uh, a massive teapot, and milk. And the kit was usually you had kit for the afternoon session and it wasn't, it was just all thrown in a big dryer and the smell of the thing with sweat and everything, you know, was absolutely, um, and there was a, the most outrageous sweat rash uh, thing went through the whole club where, you know, the, the, the kit was being dried together and it caused, oh, it was unbelievable. Um, and the club, from being a very proud, brilliant club, became very, very sad. Everything, you know, you you couldn't help saying, you know, how long ago was it when we were... Uh, and you would talk about months. You know, it went so quickly. And it was very sad. And, and um, you know, we had one time we were going to a game and the driver wouldn't leave without the, the coach being paid. So in those days, there wasn't holes in the wall. You literally got your money to take your girlfriend out on a Friday. And it ended up the players having a whip round to pay for the bus. Incredible. Um, Incredible. We, we had to buy footballs because the sponsors pulled out and the footballs were absolutely useless. So we bought footballs for training. You know, it was... It was but what we thought as a group of players was Chelsea gave us our opportunity and uh, have got us where we are. You know, yeah. You, you know, you help your best friend, don't you? You don't. Uh, you know, you don't. And it was, and that's what made that group of players so good because you'll never get out of Chelsea that sort of. Well, you probably don't want to with all the trophies you're winning, but in terms of the ethos of what it was all about, it mm. was incredible time to be at Chelsea. It, it must have improved, sort of. If, if it needed to, of course, the team cohesion of the group. Yeah, it made us together. As I said, one of my last game for Chelsea, we went up to Man City. Um, and for 40 minutes, they were all over us. But we dug in and we ended up winning. Clive Walker scored twice, I think. Um, and we won 3-2. That was the first time I think I ever won at Main Road. It was, it was an incredible place, hard place to go and win. Mm. And... Um, there was that type of together, you know, four of us won the, what they called the mini world cup for England and the four Chelsea boys would be together. Yeah. And it was, it was, I can't, it's just sad that that side didn't get the investment that, that it could have had because that side was a very good side. And if you'd got three or four established first division footballers, that, club would have taken off. That's how close it was, really. Close it was. Yeah. 
but wasn't to be. No, of course, of course. But Steve, you are sort of in a small minority group of players who left the club but came back and re-signed for Chelsea. How did that come about? Well, QPR and Chelsea played quite a lot in that year. We, we, We played twice in the league. Um, we played twice in the Milk Cup and I probably had my best games in those games uh, I really did and um, and a friend of mine was very friendly with Ken Bates um, but at the time Sheffield Wednesday and Watford had made a bid for me uh, from QPR Jim was of the Jim Gregory if he got the money he thought you were worth no matter who you were you were out the door. That's how Jim Jim Gregory, oh. honestly, he had a, a, a figure <laughs> on every player. And I had, uh, Sheffield Wednesday came in for me and Watford, Graham Taylor. And I got the phone call from Alton House, which was Jim Jim Gregory's office. And he said, right, we've, we've agreed a fee. I said, right. And I'm thinking, I went up to, to meet Howard Wilkinson and I'll tell you, with his, his regime of training, I would, have a need, I would have needed an MOT after about six months because I'd have done 55,000 miles worth of running and it frightened <laughs> me to death. Um, uh, but and they said, I said, yeah, who's that with then, Jim? He went, Chelsea. And I went, what? He said, Chelsea. I said to him, you can let me go to Chelsea? He went, yeah, they're paying the money. Yeah, so wow. it was a shock. Mm. It was a shock. But so you, liked... you had no clue prior that Chelsea were interested or there was any well, sort of talk? Of... A mate of mine was quite friendly with Bates and his name was Alec Tuckerman. Um, and when he said about, I said to him, I think Jim's going to let me go if the, if the money's right. He read, he wouldn't surprise me because he, he thinks the world of you as a player. Yeah. He really does. Um, and it was it was a great move on the service of things I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into because I walked into a civil war I walked into a civil war from being at QPR where everything was tight and the players were really good mates I walked into a civil war at Chelsea right it okay was, it, well, it was, my it was first, the summer of 1986 wasn't it that, that you moved yeah yeah, yeah. It was, it was um, you know, we went up to Bangor. And the next thing I know, there's a massive fight between Speedy and uh, David Speedy and Paul Cannaville. And I'm thinking, what is happening here? And then having breakfast the next morning, Speedy comes down with his one-wood driver to smash Cannaville over the head with it. He didn't. But it was ridiculous. And that was my first day's training. I walked in. And there was things that Bates hadn't paid them, paid the players for the members cup bonus. And it was all off. And it was the most unhappy dressing room. And what happened as it went through the season, it got clicky, little clicks here, there and everywhere. And when you sort of come into that, I remember talking to John McNaughty. He said, I've never known anything like this. This is really quite, mm. quite, you know. But do you want to hear something funny about John McNaughty? Yeah, feel free. Go on. Uh, you, you like the story. We're at Watford, and 
we've had a little talk before Kerry got in, into the room. Hmm. Um, we said to John exactly what to say to Kerry if he bites. So he said, okay, okay, we'll do that, we'll do that. So he walked in and we started talking about who's the fastest player at Chelsea. So we said about Tony Dorigo, everyone but him. And he went, you're joking, aren't you? I'm the fastest player. No one will ever beat me. No one. So John McNaught pops up and he goes, I'll race you for 100 quid, Kerry. He went, So he couldn't get his 100 quid out quick enough, Kerry. (laughs) So he said, I'll race you for 100 quid. So he gives the 100 quid to me. He said, get his 100 quid as well. And we sub John to get the 100. So he said, okay, 200 quid. Well, he paced out 100 yards, Kerry, in, in the grounds of the hotel. And he went, go! And he ended up running backwards the last 10 yards because he was so far in front. And he went, give me the money! Give me the money! I said, no. John, there you are. 200 quid. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, he didn't say he'd beat you. He said he'd race you for 200 grand. And John walked off. <laughs> Kerry, absolutely gutted. Oh, he, he went, he threw a wobbly. I'll race you for 100 quid. That's all he said. Did say he'd win. No, no, look, that, that didn't. That really pissed Kerry off. He was very, very, yeah, yeah. That's typical football banter, and and things like that happen all the time. That's uh, what a great story. <laughs> that's a fantastic. What was obviously yeah, that's sort of outside of, of on the pitch with Kerry Dixon. What was he like to deal with on the pitch? Um, well, he's one of Chelsea's best. Goal, greatest goal scorer, didn't he? His, his goal record. Um, I felt he was a little bit selfish. I'm not sure about his one-on-ones with the goalkeeper. He was, uh, you know, um, but he scored goals. And mm. I came to Chelsea at a very, very bad time. You know that. You know they they did really well for the first half of the season before '86. Did really well, and then they had a dreadful Easter. And got absolutely hammered in a couple of games. And they won the Members' Cup. They didn't get their bonus. And it all started to fall apart. It really did. It really did. Um, you know, and I... Um, it was sad to join Chelsea at a time when it was on the... You know, you could see what was going to happen. You could see what was going to happen. You know, it, and it was sad. It was sad to see. But I was delighted to be back there. It was like going home. Very different. Obviously, with Mr. Bates, it was very, very different. Um, yeah, but in hindsight, the same, never go back. What was the yeah. difference like in the ownership from your first spell to when you came back? Was there a difference in how the che- the chairman owner dealt with the players and how he sort of ran the club? Yeah, I, 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 um, I don't think there's any excuse for being rude, no matter who you're talking to. And I think Ken had a way with him that, you know, I remember him speaking to Phil Collins and saying to Phil Collins, you know, and Bobby Moore, funny enough. Um, 
he they were after tickets. And I said to, I think, you know, I think his name was, he was the little guy on the, I said, look, we got Bobby Moore, we got Phil Collins here. When they walk into the VIP thing, everyone's going to love it to be sort of with, see Phil Collins. I said to turn up the, the chairman and say, so I said, phone up the chairman and just, you know, make sure that, you know, that, that they haven't got tickets. And he said he's going to sack me if, if I let people in that. I said, well, just phone it. I'm sure he wants them in the um, in in the stadium. So he came down and he just said to him, have I ever asked for free tickets to watch your concert? To Phil Collins. And Bobby went, oh, come on, Mr. Bates. He said, it, it's, you know, he went, and why are you at West Ham today? And those were, and he went, no, and walked away. So I then took Bobby Moore and Phil Collins to the players' bar. I said, come with me. I said, we sort of, yeah, a couple of tickets and come to the players' bar. So we went to the players' bar and um, they had a great time. They had a fantastic time with the wives and, and the beer was cheaper and they had a great time. They were so, thank you very much. So uh, I get a phone call on the Monday to go and see the chairman. So I went to see the chairman and he went absolutely berserk at me for taking them in the players' bar. He thought I'd undermined them, undermined him and his decision. I said, well, I said, I thought the players' bar was our domain and we could invite anyone we wanted into the players' bar as long as they had a ticket. He said, that's right, as long as they had a ticket. Did they have a ticket? I said, they did by the time they got in, yes. Oh so, uh, yeah! Oh wow! He tried to find me two weeks' wages. Yeah, but uh, no, it was a it was a it was a funny it was a it was a funny thing because you you'd go into Chelsea <clears throat> under the Mears uh, leadership, and there was people in there like well, as I said, like John Major, uh, Lawrence Percival, Sir Richard Attenborough, all his friends, you know, um, Jane Seymour, you know. We're, get, we're getting changed. This is what Chelsea was like in the first time. We're getting changed. And there's about 15 minutes to go. And there's a knock on the door. And the door opens. And who do you think it is? Oh, God, what was her name? Uh, yeah. Raquel Welsh. Raquel Welsh, yeah. And we're going, what? And she had this thing about Aussie, evidently. She walked in with 15 minutes to go. And she's shaking <coughs> Like the Queen, walking around shaking hands with all the players and everything. And, yeah, Racco Welsh. I think it was a goalish draw. The game was a goalish draw. And I think it was because we scored in our minds before the game, thinking, oh, my God, Racco Welsh. You know, but that that's... And then another one was, we're there and we're training. And in walks Starsky and Hutch. And you're thinking, what? <laughs> and then they wanted Starsky and they wanted... Hutch to wear my kit and Starsky to wear Stannis' kit and we dressed up as them by the Mustang, the red Mustang there and, and they, you know, and you just look at it and you just think, but that was Chelsea, that, that's what it was all about and it was fantastic to be part of. And then you went to the, the austere dictatorship, I think that's the word. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably the best word for that. And Ken Bates was obviously the chairman, but John Hollings was the guy in charge of first team affairs. How influential was, was he for you during your second spell at the club? Well, I think John, uh, you know, I, I, uh, 
Well, I felt sorry for John because the players blamed him for that bonus. Right. That he didn't fight for the players hard enough. That was why it started to fall apart the scenes with John. Um, and it was very sad because he had given everything to Chelsea as a player. Yeah. As a man, yeah. he, you know, he, he tries hardest and he was absolutely superb person. But it must be hard working for someone like Ken Bates and it must have been hard for him. But he got blamed by the players that he didn't fight for the players. And I, 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 I didn't think that was right. So. I do suppose with Mr Hollins that he probably was caught between a rock and a hard place. He obviously had to try and keep the chairman happy and yeah. obviously, again, try and keep the players happy. And him being an ex-player himself would obviously understand where you and your teammates were coming from. So, yeah, as you say, that, that, that must have been a very difficult position for him at that time. Yeah, and, um, you know, he was the most honest, good man. And it was a shame that it ended at Chelsea that way. It really was, because uh, he, he deserved more, you know... He brought uh, Bobby Campbell in as Holly's number two. Um, without Holly, sort of. So it made Holly's position, you know, sort of. He had no chance. Yeah. I think Holly resigned. I think he resigned, or there was a. I don't quite know what happened, but he was. Um, it was. It was sad times. Sad times to see. Certainly, someone that I considered an absolute legend being treated that way. But there you go. And Bobby, to be fair to him, Bobby Campbell, he did a good job. He, mm. he came in, got promotion, and again got Chelsea back to to uh, to where they belong. Your final season with Chelsea, unfortunately, ended with the club being relegated after yeah. losing a league playoff. Now it's probably uh, very hard to imagine that. Format coming back, you know, with the with the league playoff, it was against um, Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough. What thoughts were going through your mind during this period? And as you, you know, you've you've already mentioned that Chelsea was a different club from the eighties yeah. to what it was when you, you know, when you first left. What sort of atmosphere was there, you know, at the club at that time? Well, it's funny because when we went to Bangor for that. Um, uh, pre-season where it all kicked off with everybody in the Eddie, uh, who was Ernie Wally, was the assistant manager and we did the most ridiculous thing so I had to march, run up a hill with Eddie Neswicki on my back he was a little bit heavier than he should have been since the first day of pre-season training and I ran up this hill at the top I turned and something went in my back and I was in absolute agony. I couldn't. I was. In, I couldn't move. I was in absolute agony. Um, and I played with injections. So I had a cortisone injection. I had about four of those. But my last game, we played away at Portsmouth, and we beat Portsmouth three 0 and we were third in the league. And I'd had this back operation, and I'd gone to work with the SAS at Epsom, and I was the fittest I'd ever been after my back operation. Um, and I, Bobby wanted me back. It worked out eight weeks sooner than what I should have done. 
Oh, but wow, we were in a, by that time, we, we'd lost 23 games on the trot or something like that. It was a very long run where we lost. <clears throat> and um, I agreed to it and I came back. Um, and we had to beat Cholton. Was it Cholton? And we drew 1-1, I think. That's right, we, yes. Yeah. The 7th so, uh, of May, 1988. Yeah, had we won yeah. that game, we should have won that game 10 times over with the chances we had, we'd have been safe. We'd have been, it'd have been them that was playing in the playoff. Um, and then we went up to Middlesbrough and quite frankly, we were all over them in the first half. Um, Kerry had, in the game, he had four one-on-ones versus a goalkeeper. Um, and they had, and as Bobby said, they had two shots and scored twice. One from a goalkeeper mistake and the other, I, I can't remember the other one. But I really felt confident that we turned that, we turned that round at Stamford Bridge. With, with, with a full house, I really felt confident that we, we, would, we would pull that out. Um, and we scored. We scored at the right time. We scored after about 20 minutes. Gordon Jury, I think. And I thought, this is it. And we just couldn't get that other goal. We tried everything. We could not get that other goal. And it was heartbreaking because we should have never been in that position. Not with the team we had. You know, that team we had there, you had two put of that team signing for Liverpool. You know, Spackers and, and David and, you know, you know they, they went and signed, you know, for Liverpool. Yeah. You know, and it, it was it was really Tony Dorigo was the England left back then. Because hmm. he would go on to Leeds later on as well. You know, he was a, he was a talented team, but behind the scenes, behind the scenes, it was it was it was a, a club at war. It was, and what happened is you had you sort of walk in the thing and you'd, you'd have four there, five there, four there. It was never together. Never together. But there you go. It's, it was sad. Hmm. Sad. But, but they, they got back to where, you know, they were only down one season, weren't they? Yes, that's right. They uh, had, yeah. they, they spent that season in the oh. second division and they pretty much walked it. I, I had a sort of a chat with Kevin Wilson on it and he, he said that the team were flying, you know, wins week in, week out, scoring goals yeah. for fun. And as you say, they got back to the first division where, where they yeah. belonged and they haven't been relegated since. No, no, that's, that's, and I don't think there's any chance of that in the, in the foreseeable future. Yeah. No, I uh, well, I, I, absolutely not. Let's, let's sort of move on to the present, shall we? Obviously we've discussed you know, we've discussed your career and it's, it's, it has been a fascinating one. One thing I actually do want to discuss as well uh, before we do discuss um, present matters. Obviously, when you finished your playing career, you then went into you know, coaching. Yeah. Was, it, was it around that time in, the, in your second spell at Chelsea that you felt you could become a coach, a leader, sort of? Yeah. Yeah, I, well... Uh, the best coach I ever worked for in my life by a light year was Terry Venables. Right. 
yeah. like the most talented. You know, people used to give QPR stick when we used to play offside. But <laughs> do you know what Terry used to call that? And we're going back to 1986. Well, 85, 84. What did Terry used to call that? The high press. And to me, that shows you how much before his time he was. He said to, I remember his first day at QPR and he was trying to get his ideas over. And he said about showing the wingers inside. Now, no one did that. Everyone's show them on the outside, show them on the outside. Right? Always the thing is, so everyone was like looking at him as if he just landed from Mars. And he said, so he called Ian Dawes over. He said, Dawesy, you're marking a left back. Tell me what his strengths are. So he said, pace and probably got a good left foot. He said, right. Now, if you show him down the line and you've got pace, and he's got a good left foot, and he gets a, and hits a great crossing. That's the hardest cross for our defenders to deal with. Now, if you show him inside, you're showing him on his weak foot. You're running him into players because everyone came. You're running him into players, and he was just light years ahead. He was the most. I think we conceded the least number of goals in the first division until he was beaten by Arsenal. And that was that was down to it. he was, and it's funny because um, when I went to Malaysia, um, and the club I looked after, I was manager of, was Selangor, and I didn't know a lot about Malaysian football at all. I didn't have any idea. Anyway, when I landed, there was a massive supporters everywhere, and and when I saw the stadium, it was like something like a plane, uh, uh, alien spaceship had landed. It held 95,000 people. The average crowd at the game was 69,000 people. And in the Malaysia Cup final that we eventually won, there was 108,000 people. Wow. And I had no idea. But I sat in, I sat in my room after, after we won the Malaysia, and we'd won the, the, the league, the FA Cup out there, and the Malaysia Cup. And I sat in my room to have a beer because you can have a beer out there because they're Muslim um, and I thought God everything I taught my team in Malaysia came from Terry all his ideas that I went through and I had little routines for and everything were down to him fantastic him. story yeah and he's, he was he, well I think he proves he's the only England manager with the exception probably of South, Southgate, that has united the press, the fans, everyone together as England. And that was obviously in 88, what was that, 80? Yeah. When, yeah, when we got beaten in the semi-final. Yeah, so it, it's, um, it is a, yeah, Terry Venables was light years ahead. And, uh, but, no, I'd, I'd love, I'd love being a manager, but I, I, I became very, Dealing with the lower leagues and dealing with chairmen and their egos because they're the most successful businessman in their town and that is a very, very hard thing. Uh, and I went to Lincoln and he wanted to sign a player and I said to him, well, 
firstly, I'm not sure. And there was an ex-Chelsea footballer was the manager. And I said to him, I'll speak to David Weatherworth and see what he said. And David listed off all the things wrong with him, not to touch him, not to have anything to do with him. You know, because I know you and we go on, because I played with him at Derby as well, Webby. And uh, so I went back to the chairman and I said, look, told him everything. The next morning, I arrive and there's a car in my space. So I did, I'm not one of those people, so I park the car, walk in, and the video shaking his head at me. And he said, I said, what? The guy that I told him everything about was having a medical and the chairman was signing him. Wow. Yeah. It was signing, and I thought to myself, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I really don't. So I resigned. I resigned, yeah. You resigned and, and on the they, back of that? Um, yeah, because if you sell your soul, you know, the chairman, and he was he was coming down at half-time, shouting and screaming, telling the players what they're doing wrong. I'm not into all that. You know, I think when, when, you're, when you're a manager or coach, whatever it is now, you know, you, no interference at half-time. And this guy was... Loopy. So, <laughs> so I, I said to him, do you know what? Why don't you, you own the club, why don't you become manager? Why don't you become the manager? And he did for, I think he lasted six weeks. He couldn't take it. So, oh. interesting. Interesting. Wow. Well, I was... I'm actually quite speechless with that story, Steve. Um, before before I do let you go, um, eventually, I just want to ask this question to all my previous um, guests and your thoughts on VAR. Obviously, this season it's been a bit of up and down a little bit. You know, people have loved it, people have uh, despised it. But what's your thoughts on the uh, VAR concept? Um, I think the thing that's going wrong is they're nitpicking. Instead of just doing the vital things, they're going back and they go. Now, I can't understand why they can't say, you know, you have you know, someone's offside uh, with an armpit. Someone's offside with their hand. Why don't they just look at the feet? And I, think say, I, know, I, I think I know which particular thing you're, you're referring to, yes. Why don't they just look and say, just look at the feet, just draw a line where the feet are, fine. But not if someone's sort of bending over like that and his head's offside. Do it with the feet. It'd be so much easier. Especially and, if he's pointing where he wants the ball. Yeah. And they yeah. ask classes offside now. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Do it with the feet. Um, and if it doesn't... I just like today, there's, there's some real drama today. A ref where it worked today in the game... Um, Burnley Arsenal Arsenal get warded a penalty the guy gets the red card they've looked at VAR they've dragged the referee over he's looking at the thing and actually this guy has done an absolute fantastic defensive job he's thrown himself in there and the ball's hit him on the shoulder right no penalty red card rescinded great VAR fantastic but what I can't 
for the life of me is when they start drawing lines and then you find out that his nose is offside. I think that is ridiculous. And I think that's what's, that's what, you know, destroying our game. You know, Could you so, imagine if uh, VAR was around in your playing days? I think there'd be a few players um, not too happy. Yeah, well... Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think probably there's a lot of players and a lot of managers aren't happy, now. you know, today with it. Um, but it's just they're being over finicky. We should use it for certain decisions. Like that one was an ideal thing, penalty red card. Use it then. Yes. But not, not, you know, going back three phases and, yeah. And they've got to sort out this handball thing because it's absolute. When a defender goes for a block and throws himself into a John Terry special, if you like, and the ball hits his hand from a yard, I can't see how that's a penalty. Hmm. I can't see. And I, I just think that it's gone ridiculous now, handball. And that's, they've got to look, mind you, I think they've done something last night, didn't they? They've, they've changed the rules. Decisions been made, yeah. Yeah, they, they've sort of changed the rules on, on um, if the ball just hit your hand and put your hands sort of by your side. They've sort of, they have classed that as a uh, not hand ball, but I completely agree <laughs> with you, Steve. I just that's, think... That's starting this weekend. I don't know when it's starting. Um, I don't even think they know when it's going to be starting. I think, because yeah, I they... You, that would be very so unfair... Much very unfair for the, the, the sides that have lost points through conceding a penalty like that. They should leave that to the end of the season. They shouldn't change it now. No. No. That's not... No. Yeah. Com- com- completely right. It's It's been an interesting season for Chelsea, this one. Um, obviously, change of manager and sort of interesting results, put it that way. Again, we were, we were fantastic on our last uh, win, but what have you made of Chelsea this season and where do you see them finishing off the season? I would love Chelsea to sign Haaland. I think because we're missing a nine. A quality nine. You know, um, I don't think Tam is ready yet to lead the line. I really don't. He, he, I don't think he's a finished article. Um, Werner, I think he doesn't know where he's playing at the moment. He's playing wide, he's playing it. You know, and we need that that number nine that is going to guarantee us 25, 30 goals a season. And Haaland, to me, is the one. And if I could sign anybody, it would be him. And I also think we need a centre-back. I, I, I think we need... Mind you, Christensen was unbelievable the other night at Liverpool. He had a great game. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with different managers, motivation in different ways, he might, he's got every attribute a centre-half could ever wish for. But he hasn't got John Terry's heart. And if he had John Terry's heart, he'd have, he'd have everything. You know, and I think, you know, that's, you know, that, 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 that's all we need. That, that's all we need is those two players. And I'm delighted for Mason Mount as well, I've got to say. Yes. Turning yes, into... Ab- absolutely. One. Hell of a player. Yes. Uh, I hope with a lot, you know, from being Frank's golden boy to this and that and people giving him a stick. He's got his head down. He's worked his socks off. And me, now, he'd be one of the first players on my England team sheet. That's how highly I think of him. I think he's absolutely superb. And 
he looks a good lad as well. He looks one of a real good lad, and I'm pleased for him. I think it'd be a travesty if he doesn't start at the Euros. I think he's been arguably England's best centre midfielder. I mean, James Madison's had a good season as well, but Mason Mount's just been on another level for me. Oh, I think without doubt. And the other thing that, that appeals to me is that his, his best mate is Rice. Yes. So playing together, they love that. They love that. And, and they know each other really well and that they love that. But I can't see why, you know, Gareth sometimes plays with two holding midfield players. There's no need to do that with Mason because he's got the intelligence when things start to, he, he's got the intelligence to hold. He won't just bomb on, he'll hold. And I still think you can get Grealish in that team if you trust Mason. If you know he's got, he's got a head that, has, that he will take responsibility for not going if it needs to, you know, I think he'd be perfect in that role. Hmm. I'd much rather see him than Dyer, than, well, these, those two negative players in the middle of the park. Uh, uh, yeah, join him when you join him, but then make sure that you don't overstretch. But then you've got, I've never known an England situation where they've got such an abundance of talent in the first six positions, in the, the well, yeah, you know, it's incredible. But uh, it's going to be exciting times. And I think it's going to be exciting times for Chelsea as well. I actually think that um, obviously this year's gone to win the league. But there's lots of signs that if we get the right players, then I think uh, we're not that far off either. I think it all depends on where we finish this season. You know, of the people are going about top four this, top four that. If we do finish in the Champions League places, and the rumours are true that Roman is going to give Thomas Tuchel two hundred and fifty million to spend, then fair enough. That will hopefully give an improvement on the team, and we'll see what Thomas Tuchel can provide in regards to player acquisitions. No, I was going to say, it'd be interesting to see what happens. But I think I think that's what Roman will want. He will want that leader. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Steve, final question. How do you look back on your career at Chelsea? Um, I would say the best was Spell One. You know, I, I uh, when we haven't mentioned him, but um, anyone that knew Ray as a, as a person, as a player... Would have been honoured to have, have had him as our captain, as your captain, Ray Wilkins. Think, yes, what, yes. Yeah, what what we achieved under his leadership as a team, I think, was unbelievable. Really, a group of young players with an average age. I think, you know, the average age of the team was, you know, without Ron Harris in it and without David, it was something like nineteen at one stage. And you go away to places like Notts County away where you're just getting kicked all over the place. But the togetherness and the desire to get our team back where it deserved, our club, it was that was the main thing. And to play with players like Ray and John Sparrow and people like that, it, it, all of them, it was an incredible honour. And, and an honour to play for Chelsea at that time as well. A real honour. And that's all I can say about it, really, it's it's fantastic. It was a fantastic time. Steve, 
honestly, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Blue Day podcast today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the stories you, that you've provided to myself and to the listeners. I'm sure everyone who followed Chelsea in the 70s and 80s and appreciates their history, I think, is going to really enjoy listening to this. So I just want to say thank you massively for your time today. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. That's my pleasure. Anytime, please. Sports Social Podcast Network.